This week, we're talking Hungary. We're going to be talking about the track, its history, and some of its notable events that have happened there. In Tech Corner, we're going to be talking wings and downforce and the evolution of aerodynamics in a small part. And then we'll go through a weekend recap of the wild and unpredictable practice sessions, qualifying, the race, and also, we're going to be talking about some of the news around F1, such as the DeVries out, Ricardo in. So all that's coming up on F1 Break Check. Welcome. You are listening to F1 Break Check, the epic podcast for all things Formula One, where we discuss technology, history, news, and perspective. With your hosts, Scott Vick and Corey Green. This is F1 Break Check. This week, we're talking about the Hungary Grand Prix. Kind of a quick little history lesson about the Hungaro Ring, as it's called. A couple quick facts about it. The Hungaro Ring was the first race held behind the Iron Curtain before the Iron Curtain fell. So it was the first race that was ever held in the Eastern Bloc countries. It's famously nicknamed the Turnstile, <laughs> or uh, some of the drivers call it Monaco Without the Walls. Because it's kind of the same type of track where it's very tight, very twisty, very narrow, without a lot of straightaways. It's the eighth shortest track on the calendar at 2.7 miles, 4.38 kilometers. But it also has one of the shortest straightaways outside of Monaco. It's only 908 meters from the last turn to the turn one. The track only has two DRS zones, the front straightaway, and then coming out of turn one, there's a short very very short straightaway going into turn two and those are the only two drs zones race is usually held in the summer it's usually very hot very dusty because the track is built into a natural bowl and because the track isn't used very much outside of the formula one weekends it has a tendency to be very very dusty and unlike some of the other tracks that have a tendency to get kind of dusty because of the conditions when it's not in use those tracks the dust gets blown off during the over the course of the weekend and as the as they rubber in they get faster but because of the way that the hungaro ring is built in its natural bowl is it takes and it has a tendency to continue to get dusty very very fast so even over the during qualifying it'll get a lot quicker but then you'll also see the speeds actually fall off between qualifying in the race so it, it makes a very interesting race weekend the track hosted its first race in 1986 it has the distinction of being on the calendar every year since its introduction and one of the big things that came out this weekend was is that it's going to be on the calendar going forward until 2032 so <laughs> we're going to be seeing the hungaro ring for quite a while there's a lot of drivers that say that hungary even though it's very tight very slow comparatively to some of the other tracks and because it is so notoriously hard to pass there there's a lot of drivers that insist that it's literally it's one of their favorite tracks though because it's a very technical track and it's really hard to get the track quote unquote right and being able to be very fast there it's a very technical track hungary has the distinction though of being the place where a number of great drivers got their first win 
Um, some of the notable drivers um, were as Damon Hill got his first win there in 1993. Fernando Alonso got his first win there in 2003, which at the time also made him the youngest winner in Formula One at that time. Jensen Button coming through the carnage and the rain of 2006 to take his maiden victory. You had Hecky Kovalina, which I know I just butchered that. So Hecky, if you're listening, I apologize. Took his first and only Grand Prix win in 2008, but he also has the distinction of becoming the 100th driver to win a Grand Prix <laughs> with his one and only win there. At <laughs> And then also Esteban Ocon being the latest first-time winner at Hungary in 2021. A couple of other notable events is Michael Schumacher in 2001 matched Alain Prost's Grand Prix total wins of 51 at the Hungaro Ring. Both Nigel Mansell and Michael Schumacher both clinched their world titles at Hungary in 1992 and 2001, respectively. And as you and I have talked about, Corey, in the past, but this is one of those heartbreaking moments was Damon Hill's almost victory in 1997. So famously, Damon Hill gets dropped from Williams at the end of the 1996 season, signs with the very underfunded but scrappy Eros team who were running the Yamaha Works engine at the time. They go to the Hungaro ring. He wins pole, leads almost the entire race, and then at the very end, on the last lap, the engine lets go. <laughs> and he ends up having to coast across the finish line and ends up finishing second. And then it's also notable for the 2009 Philippe Massa crash. His Ferrari went head on into one of the tire bearers after he was struck in the head by a flying spring that came off of Rubens Barrichello's Braun GP car. So the spring actually broke off of the car, went flying through the air and struck Philippe Massa on the helmet. And this was in 2009, so this was pre-Halo days. Hits him in the head, he loses control, you know, knocks him out instantly. He goes into the tire barrier, is airlifted to the hospital, makes a pretty miraculous recovery, uh, was back out of the hospital after only uh, a couple of weeks, and then later on actually returned to race later on in the season after he had to have a titanium plate inserted into his face <laughs> in order to, to, to strengthen up the structure of his skull so that it would allow for him to be able to drive under the heavy g-force loads of a formula one it's just amazing to me the extent people will go to just to keep either in f1 racing or what have you any sport yes what people will go to the lengths that they'll go to in order to stay in that sport it's, it's amazing. Oh, yes. A plate in the head. <laughs> no, no, I'll, I'll take the plate in the head. I just don't want to uh, quit racing. Yes, okay. absolutely. <laughs> you know, you know, it, yeah, because I don't think we've ever talked about it here on the podcast, but I know that you and I have talked about it in our private chats and everything about if you're just in a sport for the money or for the fame, most of the time you're not going to be as successful at it as someone who is truly passionate about the sport. That's why we see the quote-unquote paid drivers who they pay to get their seats. Now, they may small salary back from the team later on down the road, but 
they basically they bring the sponsorship that gets them that seat and a lot of you know now i'm not taking away from you know some some of them because some of them have had to initially buy their way into their seats, but because they had that passion for the sport and they had such a love for what they were doing, it allowed them to parlay that into bigger and better things. Nikki Lauda is a very famous example of that. Three-time world champion, but he literally had to buy his way into right. his first F1 seat. He had a really great career in the junior formulas, but he didn't get the looks at first that he really deserved. So he bet on himself, literally took out loans from banks, bought a seat in F1, which then he was later able to work his way to do some really great showings and ended up getting a seat with Ferrari and the rest is history. And there's been other examples of that, of, you know, of drivers who have had to bring some money in, but because they have that love and that passion. And so I think that that's back to exactly what you, you know, the point you were making just a little bit ago about Massa. Philippe Massa came so agonizingly close to winning a world championship when he was with Ferrari. In fact, he's actually even protesting and appealing to saying that he really should have been given the Formula One world championship. And we'll see how that plays out later on. Um, so we're not going to go into it too deeply on today, but he has come so agonizingly close to winning a world championship and had such a love for the sport that he said, yeah, I'm willing to put a titanium plate in my face just so that I can take and slip that helmet back on and climb back into the car. <laughs> hey, you know, if you're at that level, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When you're that top level and you're literally at the pinnacle of your sport you have to have you know a, a certain love for it anyway so it's exactly. which i think is important all right so we're going to go ahead and let's move on to our tech corner so today we're going to be taking we're going to be talking about the evolution of wings and downforce in formula one and we'll uh, over the summer break when we don't have as much news to talk about we're going to take a in the tech corner we're going to take an even deeper dive into aerodynamics and cfd but today we're just going to be talking about the wings and history their evolution and how they affect the car first wings on an f1 car and actually f1 was actually late to the game there was actually other racing formulas that had started experimenting with wings on the cars most famously jim hall and his chaparral sports cars uh that were raced in the u.s he was really kind of the first one to ever put a wing on the cars now there are stories though about i believe it was it was either paul newman or mario andretti was supposed to drive the car for jim hall and because he and he was the first one to put a wing on the back of the car but the problem was is that the car produced so much downforce on the back end of the car that the front end would literally start lifting up as it was going down the straightaways <laughs> and uh famously um actually it was mario andretti who said it he said i can't drive the car it's terrible and paul newman was actually sponsoring the car at the time and somebody said something to him about, you know, well, Paul Newman is expecting you to drive the car. And Mario Andretti said, well, then let him drive the car because the thing's undrivable. So Colin Chapman, one of the most brilliant 1968 
Colin Chapman, one of the most brilliant minds in Formula One, well-documented, takes and sees what Jim Hall's done with the Chaparral, and he decides to put some aerodynamic elements on the Lotus 49 at Monaco. And as you can see on this picture here that's on the screen, you can see on the front end, you can see the two little winglets that have been added to the car. And you can see how they've reshaped the bodywork on the back end of the car to add aerodynamic downforce to it. Lotus was the innovator in bringing aerodynamics to Formula One. Before the wings were introduced onto the cars, they were basically cigar-shaped cars, machines with giant wheels sticking off of them with the motors in the back. With this innovation with, from Colin Chapman, seeing this now, we'll take and we'll talk real quickly about the reason behind the wings. When we say downforce, what we're talking about is the wings basically act as a upside-down airplane wing. So instead of creating lift like an aeroplane does, it actually takes and pushes the car down. So this takes and allows the car to take and be able to go around a corner much faster because it allows the grip of the tires to, for lack of a better term, dig into the road surface and provide more grip. So Colin Chapman creates you know, these initial wings and as the season progresses, the teams start adding more and more wings to the cars in various type of configurations. So the Lotus 49 starts the aerodynamic revolution. And as the season went on, all of the teams started experimenting with adding wings to the cars. And they kind of took on a crazy, some of the team, okay, let me back up. Okay, but... As the team started adding wings to the cars, a lot of them started to use a configuration very similar to the picture that's on the screen now of the Lotus 49. These were referred to as the skyscraper wings because you can see how they're attached to the suspension by these very long stalks that go up into the wings themselves. The only problem with these is that because of the aerodynamic force that was being created on the wings, it would literally cause the supports to buckle and snap off. And famously, in the 68 season, it was at Spa, there was two catastrophic failures of the wings that were set on these skyscraper attachment points that caused Graham Hill and another driver to have very horrific crashes. Now, fortunately, they both walked away from them and everything, but it could have been much, much worse. So that's when the FIA came down and said, started putting restrictions on the wings. So the evolution of the wings has gone through uh, a number of innovations, such as like the in plates, which are the pieces of vertical material, you know, originally aluminum and later carbon fiber that were added to the ends of the wings that took did it. So instead of the air being able to flow around the side of the wings, it was able to better channel the wings, the air as it went over the over and under the wing surface. So the in plates became very, very important. And you see that even today with latest evolution of the wings. You also had the evolution starting at the Indy 500 and later coming to uh, Formula One was the invention of the gurney flap invented and made popular by Dan Gurney, which is literally just a small bit of metal 
that would be placed on the the trailing edge of the wing. But by putting that tiny little bit of metal in there, the way that the air would flow over the wings, it would actually catch that gurney flap. And depending upon how wide of a flap that they put on the rear wing could take and produce more or less downforce. The big gain from that was is that you could take and you could produce more downforce with that little tiny flap, but the aerodynamic drag was significantly reduced because that's the one bad thing that you have about the aerodynamic forces of downforce is the more downforce you have, the more drag you have, which will slow the car. So the car is able to go through the corner significantly faster, but going down the straight, the drag on the wings would actually cause the cars to slow down. So that's why a lot of times during races and stuff, you'll hear the commentators talking about the setups on the car and how they take and they try to find that fine balance between putting on the most downforce that they possibly can while at the same time minimizing the drag. In this constant quest to find that balancing act, over time, as you saw on the previous pictures of the Lotus, the wings were basically just, they were kind of like, they were literally just upside down airplane wings. And as the sport evolved and the aerodynamic wings evolved, the aerodynamicists were able to determine that by adding small gaps into the wings, so thereby creating multiple, what they refer to as elements. So you would have a one wing that would be set at a very shallow angle and then it would have a small air channel and then you would have a second element that would be at a little more of a steeper angle we saw the evolution of the wings go from a single plane to multiple planes but by having that small gap in between the wings that it allowed the air going over one element to be able to pass through and create downforce and minimize the drag and the more elements that they were able to add and they were able to take shape if you will the air around the cars to make them as efficient as possible to minimize that drag until we got to where we're at today where if you look at a high downforce track such as like monaco you see the front wings will have sometimes as many as four or five different wing elements with those gaps in them so that that way they can take and generate the maximum amount of downforce that they can. Whereas when we go to other higher speed tracks like Spa and Imola, you'll see that the teams are running very, very little downforce because they are high speed circuits. They are trying to minimize that drag as much as possible. And so they will go with fewer elements and you will see that the angle of the elements is in some cases, like at Imola, where it's almost all straightaways on that track, the elements are almost flat. So they're producing very, very little downforce. Now, there are rules around that that the FIA have governed. The wings are one of those areas where they is much more open to interpretation to how the teams want to design them. That's why you will see the differences between different manufacturers will have different wing setups that look at first glance, they may look very similar, but it, upon closer inspection, you'll see how they all do things a little bit different based upon what the team's aerodynamicists have designed. But most famously, as we've talked about on this podcast, Adrian Newey being one of the absolute greatest aerodynamicists 
and car designers ever. He is able to, he is just on another plane when it comes to designing these, the wings on cars and, and the aerodynamics of the car. The last thing we'll have, we do have to touch on though, is that in that constant quest of downforce versus drag, we have seen some times where the FIA has had to step in and say, okay, we're taking away certain areas of the car that you can't, or certain aerodynamic elements that we're taking away from the cars that you can no longer use, such as like what we were talking about just a few minutes ago about the skyscraper mounts that were attached to the suspension on the Formula One cars in the early days. They were unsafe. So therefore, the FIA said, no, you had to actually mount them to the car and there was a maximum height from the the car in which they could be mounted. And those rules still, you know, kind of carry forward today that the wings can only be so wide. They can only be so tall, both front and rear. But we also went through a period in the mid early 2000s. So the 2007, 2008, that era where the cars literally became just, in my mind, they became just atrociously ugly because in the pursuit of downforce, they were strapping on aerodynamic elements just pretty much any flat surface that they could attach an aerodynamic element to they would do that so you had you know these crazy wings that were attached on the side pods that stuck up right behind the cockpit just off to the side of the roll hoops you had the crazy front wings where they were both going under and over the nose cone most famously the mclarens like what lewis hamilton won his first championship in in Formula One, function always follows form. It didn't matter how ugly the cars got as long as they were generating just ridiculous amounts of downforce. It didn't matter how ugly the cars got to. From a aesthetics perspective, I'm so glad that the FIA finally stepped in and said, you know, hey, some of this stuff's got to go. And then the last thing I wanted to touch on was what I refer to as, and as far as I know, I'm the only one who refers to it as, but the Monaco myth. So there is a, and anytime you talk about aerodynamics in Formula One and in racing, they talk about the tremendous amounts of downforce that are created by the cars. And the theory goes that the cars are producing so much downforce that if they had the ability, they literally could race across the roof or the ceiling, if you will, of the tunnel at Monaco. When you see these cars blasting through the tunnels on the ground, they are producing so many thousands of pounds of downforce that in theory, that if they had a way to do it, the cars in theory could literally race on the ceiling of the tunnel because they're producing so much downforce that the car would literally stick to the roof. So, but nobody's ever tried it. (laughs) So that's why I call it the Monaco myth (laughs) is, is in theory it can be done, but nobody is crazy enough to actually try it and i don't know that it it would be possible to even set up something to even test it out so but it's always been kind of one of those weird facts that people throw out about the downforce that's our tech corner for the week so let's get into the race weekend so talking about i guess the the biggest news right is the breeze is out he didn't make it very long but you know what's interesting is 
obviously I'm a big fan of Danny Rick, so I'm, I'm very happy for him. But the, the interesting thing is the parent company actually made the call. The sister company really largely didn't have much to say about that. Right. And that's nope. really fairly unique among the paddock. We only have this one race team mm -hmm. that is able to, or even does that everybody else, yes. the system teams are autonomous. This is not, it's kind of an odd deal, but Warner didn't want him in the first place. And just a few races in he's out and yep. uh, he was getting the job done. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. Like you said, apparently Helmut Marco was the owner of Red Bull Racing and by extension, the junior yeah. team in AlphaTauri. He was the one who wanted DeVries in. And, it, and, and don't get me wrong. I mean, DeVries is a very good driver. You don't win a championship in the lower ranks. You know, he's he's won championships in the, in the lower formulas. He's won the Formula E World Championship, which is it's not Formula One. Yes, true. It is quite a different car, but you're still dealing a lot with the very similar speeds and everything. The guy obviously knew how to set up a car. He got to Formula One and he just wasn't getting the job done. And as we've talked about before on this podcast with, especially at Red Bull, you have a very short leash. Ask Alex Albon, ask, you know, <laughs> Gasly. Uh, Gasly, ask these guys and they will, and they'll be the first ones to tell you, you've got very little runway. Checo's feeling that heat right now, especially now, now that Danny Rick's been promoted to, from the yeah. uh, test driver to the, uh, you know, a driver at the junior team. He's basically waiting in the wings, nipping at Checo's heels. So. There's no bones about it either. I, Danny no. Rick has always has said, hey, I want that spot. We all yeah. know it's not going to be Max's, right? So it's, no. it's definitely going to be Checo. So yes. Checo has a, I'm sure he's felt the heat from day one, as soon as they announced Danny Rick was coming back, even as a, a sub driver. It doesn't matter. Yes. He knew that that's where Danny wants to go because Danny had the opportunity actually to go to Alphatari. Right. He was he mm -hmm. had that ability, but he said, no, I don't really want to go to the junior league. He wanted to go to Red Bull. That's true. Rumor has it that, yes, he wanted to go. He, he didn't really necessarily want to go to AlphaTauri, but I think he was also kind of told that you really don't have much of a chance because Helmet wanted DeVries in that seat anyway. Yeah. So okay. it would have had to have been a pretty crazy set of circumstances to see him get that seat in anyway. But I think that the smartest move that they made was the fact that when they put DeVries in that seat, for him to sign with Red Bull as the sub driver, the test driver, it definitely put him in the perfect spot that if Yuki had faltered more or DeVries, yeah. he got the hook, Danny Rick's in. It was definitely the best situation for Danny Rick to really come back and be there. And then, and then with Checos, as we've discussed, with yeah. Checo's struggles, Danny Rick's right there, ready to yeah. take over. Oh, so, yeah. and now that he's back in actually racing and not all spending all of his time in the sim, you know, it's right. definitely makes it even more of a what if situation. And really, when you think about it, this move for Danny is a better move anyway, because yeah, if you go straight from the, the amount of pressure that he's been under for the last three or four years. And then go right into that second spot at Red Bull. That's not going to do very good. So now if he goes to AlphaTauri, he doesn't have near as much pressure. He can relax, get back into the racing driver that he is, that we all know that he is. 
get back to that form, he can be able to maybe push out at Checo, or maybe there's another team out there. Ferrari, they look like they're shopping around. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Maybe Mercedes, who knows? But getting his chops up to where he gets his confidence back, going into Red Bull directly just would not would not have been the most ideal for him. You and I discussed offline last Friday when we were hanging out, smoking cigars and stuff. One of the things that's so great that I think the part of the reason why so many drivers like Hungary and look forward to that race is because it being so short and being so tight, it's not really a quote unquote power circuit. So it's much more down to driver ability and the ability of being able to get the right setup on the car and everything that it leads to all kinds of unpredictability. And then you take and you throw in the weather. So we had a, you know, a wet <laughs> FP1, dry FP2, FP3 was significantly hotter than it was the day before qualifying same thing was even hotter than fp3 so you had all kinds of nuttiness happening (laughs) fp1 you know we wind up with you know russell on top right piastri second and stroll third but more importantly is not just who was leading the times but who didn't even set a time in fp1 because of the, the the conditions you know so, yeah, I mean, you know, Ricardo, neither one of the Red Bulls, neither one of the Alpines, and Lewis Hamilton never even set a time during FP1. Right. But yet, so, and it was, it, uh, this this whole weekend, it was so strange that you would have the way that the, in a lot of the cases, the way the teams actually kind of split. So it was like, at different times during the weekend, you'd have one car at the top of the grid and the other car at the bottom of the grid (laughs) and vice versa. And then not only that, would you have one at the top and one at the bottom, but they would actually flip as in the case of Hamilton and Russell, Russell leads FP one and he's like at the bottom of FP three. It's so funny. And then going into qualifying, I mean, qualifying was just, it, it was definitely interesting. You know, we, we see yes. Hamilton looking fantastic. His race pay or his qualifying pace, I should say, was just out of this world. He was able to beat Max, although it's three thousandths of a second. That was enough, right? He got yep. pulled, which was the first time since December 2021. Yep. Been a few years since he's actually seen yep. that pole position. And then it was a really great qualifying. I, I like to see that. Yeah. More people are starting to pressure Max, but we'll talk about the race after the qualifying. But Max was back to uh, leading again. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Talking about qualifying, we absolutely have to talk about the amended regulations for this weekend concerning tires. Because uh, especially since most... last week we had Tech Corner on tires. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. On most race weekends, the tire, not counting the wets and the intermediates, the drivers are each driver is given thirteen dry weather tires. They get a, an allocation of hard, medium, and soft. With you know the softs being what they get the most of. I believe it's like out of the thirteen, I believe it's like either six or seven of the tires are softs, and then like five of them are. The medium four or five of them are the mediums, and then the rest are taken up with the hards. Well, this weekend, the FIA and Pirelli, because they didn't want to bring as many tires this time, I don't know if it was a cost-cutting measure or if it was a production issue or something, but this weekend, 
they abbreviated the regulations so that in qualifying, every team in Q1 had to use the hards. Q2, everyone who made it into Q2 had to use the mediums. And then everyone who made it in Q3 had to use the softs. So this cut down the allocation of tires from 13 to 11 for the weekend. So every team had two fewer sets of softs than what they normally have in a given race weekend. And it also kind of took some of the gamesmanship and strategy of qualifying kind of out of the team's hands. Normally, you would have, you know, during qualifying, you would have teams trying out different compounds during Q1. And then the ones that made it into Q2, they would generally, you know, start on the, you know, usually start on the mediums, sometimes on the hards. Then they would take, they would go to softer ones to set their final time for that qualifying. And then they would go back to the mediums or the hards for at the beginning of Q3. And then they would play around with different strategies during qualifying to try to set their best times. And taking all of that out of the team's hands made for a little bit more interesting qualifying. At the end of Q1, we had the Alfa Romeo of Joe Granu sitting at the top of the time charts. In fact, yeah. at one point he was actually uh, leading, uh, you know, the time charts in Q1 because of all the teams having to use the exact same tire compound. Right. Speaking of somebody that bought their way into F1. There you go. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And he hasn't really <laughs> failed to impress. You know, he's not one of no. those that comes in and is last place every single race. He's yes, actually absolutely. really good and he's been improving yes. as well. Yeah, and, and absolutely improving. And the fact that, you know, and you want to talk about someone who has a passion for it yeah. after his scary crash at Silverstone oh, God. No uh, last year, yes. you know, where, you know, he winds up upside down, roll right. hoop actually fails. He ends up flipping over the tire barrier. And the fact that he walked, A, walked away from it, and B, was yeah. back for the next race. It just goes <laughs> to show that, you know, there a, a lesser driver would have been scared, would have, may have just said, hey, I'm walking away. And we go back to talking about how topsy-turvy a lot of the, the team splits were, is this is another example where Hamilton wins the pole, beats out Verstappen, and Russell is out in Q1. I know. You know, after yeah. he led the times in fp1 so it was just really a crazy qualifying session but we can't talk about qualifying without talking about checo finally gets off the schneid gets into q3 as we were talking about the pressure that checo must be under i think he was feeling it and he made good on it by getting into q3 this time first around. time in five races six races? five races he placed what sixth place i think in qualify yes yeah yeah he made it in We'll talk about the race in a minute. He did do yeah. well. He did get sixth place in the qualifying, but still need him to do a little bit better. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of that comes down to, though, when he crashed out of at the very beginning of FP1 uh, to bring out the, uh, the first red flag in FP1, the damage done to the car and everything, he damaged some of the upgraded parts. They had brought some new brake ducts to handle the heavy braking of the Hungaro ring. And I think that some of those parts that he damaged kind of led to his not as good a qualifying session as Max simply because he didn't have 
those newer parts available or they didn't have time to evaluate the new parts and kind of had to fall back to the old parts. I don't know that that's exactly the case, but that's kind of my suspicion. That does make sense. He's just such a phenomenal driver. And quite frankly, I, I'm, I'm pulling for him to make it at Red Bull. He's not the clear number two, which makes it more exciting because mm-hmm. he actually pushes Max versus you know, like Botas and and uh, Hamilton, Botas knew he was second and he was fine with mm-hmm. it, right? This isn't the case with Checo. He mm-hmm. doesn't want to be number two. He wants to be that lead. And I love seeing those fights. I, we talked about it last podcast. Love seeing Yes. It. That's fantastic. I do too. I don't want that to go away for somebody that knows that they're number two to Max. Yes, absolutely. Definitely have to keep pushing him. Just continuing on that thought, Max continues on. Hamilton, granted, Hamilton wasn't going to win no matter what, but he messes up in the first turn. Max takes over and just, he's 20, 30 second leads again. He's able to yes, and, you know, do full tire changes or tire changes. And he's able to get back the lead again. It's just, it's crazy how much of a, a lead this, this person has in front of all of F1. In fact, so much so, Total Wolf said something to the effect of Max is in an F1 car and everybody else is in an F2 car. Yeah. It's amazing the gap that Max has versus everybody else. And it, it's not necessarily just the car. Because, again, we have a fantastic driver in Checo. We have a fantastic car, which is a Red Bull. Mm-hmm. And still, Checo didn't get more than 20, 30 seconds on him. So it's it's more than just the, the car. I think it obviously is also the driver as well. Vettel has come back and said something to the same effect as well. To win, it's not just the car. You have to be a good driver. I mean, yes. you could put me in that car. I'm not going to get first place, <laughs> right? No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. definitely it, talent there in Max. It's not yes. just... That, yeah, that's one thing that's always driven me nuts throughout the entire history of Formula One is the people yeah. who don't know as much about the sport who say, oh, well, I could get in that car and, and win a world championship. And it's like, no, good luck. you know, yeah, good <laughs> luck with that. You have the best car. You don't necessarily have to be the best driver on the grid, but you have to be top two or three in a really good car in order to be able to take and get the maximum potential out of that car to be able to take and not just win races, but to win world championships, because it takes more than just winning a bunch of races to become a world champion, because you have to be able to be smart enough and mentally tough enough to be able to say, okay, today is not our day. Just gather as many points as you can come home in third, fourth, fifth place to gather all the points that you can and not throw it away just simply because, or give up just simply because Mm -hmm. The car's not there that day. Right. Max is definitely one of the best drivers on the grid today. He's already a two-time world champion. You don't get to be a two-time world champion just because you've got a really good car. Right. It's, you know, you've got to be fast. Just so happens that he's one of the best drivers in the best car. Hands down, far and away, no question, no bones about it, best car on the grid. And he has taken that and taken his ability and used his innate ability to drive that car to extract the absolute maximum potential out of the car to be able to take and bring the car home in P1. So yeah, so going back to the start though, Hamilton has a horrible start, even though he is starting, you know, it's, it's well, well documented 
that the left side of the grid, which is on the racing line and the right side, the difference between the two sides is everybody wants to be on the left side because it's it's much, much cleaner. Going back to the dust that we were talking about mm -hmm. at the beginning when we were talking about the history of the Hungaro ring, the right side is always way dustier and you have, and even though they do their best to take and try to clean off as much of the marbles that they can before the race, they can't get rid of everything over a given race weekend and stuff and so on the dirty side of the grid it's much harder to minimize the wheel spin and get a good start but yet hamilton on the clean side gets a horrible start and by corner two he's already been passed by both verstappen yes piastri and norris <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i'm glad you brought that so, up yeah he got passed not only right by verstappen i completely phased on that right he got passed he got into fourth place before the the second lap Yes. Oh, come on, yeah. man. And then he's complaining about the, the car the entire time. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Which brings but, me to the, the but, point of, we we're, were talking about this right before the podcast, is him and Mercedes, they, the love affair, you think it's gone? You think that there's I'm starting to think left? that the love affair is, I think, starting to definitely wane. And we talked about, you know, in, in earlier podcasts about how with the improvements that Mercedes had made to the car with some of their upgrades that they brought, you know, to like Monaco and things like that, that he seemed to be much, much happier. It's definitely one of those things that he was happier with the car because it was performing much better. But even if the car gets better, I think Hamilton, it might be that whole familiarity breeds contempt type thing yeah. where it's just because he's been with Mercedes for so long yeah. that maybe it's just like you said, maybe the bloom is off the rose and maybe it. Yeah. And I definitely I definitely think that that's the case is I definitely think the bloom is off the rose. You know, I'm using a lot of metaphors and a lot of cliches here, but <laughs> all good. <laughs> but all good. Yeah, but I definitely think that yes, beforehand that I think that if any other team like Ferrari or somebody had come calling, Hamilton wasn't interested at all. Now right. I think that he may be kind of opening up to sure. at least listening to what they have to say. Right. Yeah, because last race, even Toto Wolf got on and said, Hey, Lewis, we know the car is slow get to racing and this yeah. last one hamilton was saying something to the effect of hey are you making my car slow and <laughs> all these things combined the funny thing is we had hamilton ended in fourth place george mm -hmm. he was much further back in in the field and then russell came home in in sixth place and that's a fairly large gap yeah okay so the mercedes isn't going to be challenging max right now but you got fourth place and some of those errors were not strategy errors. Some of those errors, quite honestly, were yours. You need to own yes. it, right? So yes, it does seem like at least we're starting to see things bubble up, which for Mercedes is showing that behind the scenes, there's probably a lot more animosity going on behind the scenes that we just don't ever see. Yeah. So, that, that, that we're not privy to. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. So it, it'll be interesting, especially in the silly season, what happens there. Yeah, absolutely. And I guarantee you that once we get past the summer break, we're going to see the silly season really start to ramp up. Yeah. Usually it's pretty quiet through this, the summer break. And then once we get past the summer break, 
it comes on oh, yeah. comes on strong and yeah. as we saw you know in you know <laughs> not last year but the year the before, before that before. Yeah, when yeah. Vettel, when he stepped down, Vettel yeah. announced his retirement, and the and the musical chairs began. Yeah. It was, oh, it was <laughs> super super interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with this win, that makes twelve in a row for Red Bull, which surpasses McLaren's eleven in a row in their all conquering MP44 that won fifteen out of sixteen races. Red Bull have definitely taken what they've got. And they have maximized it to its full potential. And so now that they've won every race this season, 12 in a row, it's just absolutely, it's just amazing what they're doing over at Red Bull. As we've talked about on multiple times on different podcasts, you know, earlier this season, I still don't think that they're going to win every single race. There's still going to be something that's going to come up. that's going to bite them. Gremlins are going to rear their ugly head. They're going to have, Max is going to have a first corner tangle with somebody that is unavoidable. That's going to punt him off the track, put him out of the race or put him so far out of contention because the car's not at a hundred percent. I definitely think they're going to surpass McLaren's season record without a doubt there. I mean, it's like they're going to surpass their 15 races in a single season no problem i really seriously think that 20 19 20 races is absolutely in the cards if Easy, they continue yeah. on the charge that they're that right. they've been on hopefully checo can start fighting max because he's what a hundred and something points well uh, over 100 you know, like 105 yeah, he's, points behind yeah so his, yeah, his chance of contention is pretty much shot is pretty much done. So I think that he's going to kind of fall back into the <clears throat> number two support for Max, but there are going to be weekends or at least ways in the past. We've seen even when he is out of contention uh, for the driver's championship, where he's faster than Max on yeah. a given race weekend as long as he you still might be able to maximize the potential from the car may possibly eke out you know a win or two as the season progresses when max may not have such a good weekend or it the unavoidable gremlin happens the thing i keep pointing back to is everybody talks about you know how dominant the red bull is and how you know they should win every race and it's like all i have to do is point at two years ago at Azerbaijan. Max is winning the race handily. I mean, he was 20, 30 seconds up, coming down the front straightaway, and his Pirelli on the rear lets go. Puts him into the wall because it's the car snaps on him, and he has absolutely right. no way of recovering. Goes straight into the wall. We get the famous, you know, Max Verstappen kicking the car. <laughs> you know, things like that are going to happen. You know, somebody is going to take during a race, somebody's going to go off the track, drag some debris back onto it, or there's going to be a crash or something. And they're not, there's going to be a small little piece of debris that's going to get missed, right? Which is going to puncture a tire. Winning every race, I don't think is possible. So let's talk real quick. Let's get into some of the other news, the other non Red Bull news. Yeah, right. <laughs> from right. this weekend. So, first thing we have to talk about is we have to talk about the Williams being a fluke. We had hoped that after their really impressive showing at Silverstone last week, yeah. that we were seeing a, a resurgence from Williams. Well, as we saw, 
last weekend was a fluke. Yeah, so disappointing. I really wanted to see them to be a little bit more competitive. So we had Sergeant didn't even finish. He goes off, you know, ends up having to retire the car. Albon is not even in the points this weekend. Finishes 11th and just outside the points. For all intents and purposes, after the high of last weekend at Silverstone, this weekend was just a serious letdown. It was so bad for them. Hopefully this is a fluke and not this one was just a one-off. We'll we'll definitely see next weekend. McLaren's Um, looking good yet again. Yeah, total fluke. Opposite side of the coin. Yeah. McLaren again has a really, really strong yeah. weekend. You know, all weekend long, Piastri and Norris were at the top of the yeah. practice times, which they turned into a absolutely brilliant qualifying behind right. come third and fourth on the grid. At one point early on, Piastri is running a very, very strong second. It's only during the pit stops that Norris was able to take and jump Piastri. And I think Piastri had some issues later on. He kind of drops back right. in the standings, but he still comes in with an enormous points haul. Norris finishes on the podium. I believe this is the first time that Norris has had back-to-back podiums in Formula One, which I is phenomenal so. for him. I think we're finally really, McLaren is fine. As we talked about last podcast, McLaren has finally given Norris a car worthy of his potential. And as long as they continue to develop the car at the pace that they've done, which they had more upgrades this week, more around the track-specific front wing and everything to to maximize the the front-end grip and everything. But as long as they continue to do this, and Piastri is still... Yeah, you know, as you know, we talked about last podcast, you know, I wasn't real high on Piastri at the beginning of the season, but I've got to say, I'm, I'm becoming a Piastri fan. I yeah. really think that, you know, the whole situation with him and the whole love Alpine. triangle with yeah. Alpine and McLaren, but Alpine dropped the ball. I mean, no two ways about it. McLaren stepped in because they saw the potential in the kid and the kid's living up to the hype. So I'm just super, super excited yeah. about seeing McLaren back where I believe that they should be. They should be back at the t- at the sharp end of the grid, not fighting for the midfield, you know, right. title and finishing fifth or sixth in the in the constructors championship. Ferrari. So I it's funny. I saw this meme the other day that had Kimi Raikkonen holding a sign. I don't know if you've seen this or not. I've seen but... that one. <laughs> the I'm still the says... last Ferrari world championship. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely brilliant oh it's so sad but true they're shopping for new drivers it looks like you know hamilton's a a strong possibility i'd say i would say so about earlier so it's it'll be interesting there i just hope that with if hamilton does go to ferrari i do hope that it's more schumacher going to ferrari type situation and not uh Yeah, a Vettel going to Ferrari where it's like the first year with Ferrari, the car was pretty good. But then after that, it just, (laughs) I I really hope that it's more of a Schumacher type situation of him leaving Benetton and going to Ferrari and then winning, you know, multiple world championships with him. So we'll, we'll see. I mean, like I said, as I said, just a little bit ago, I think as we get back from the summer break, the silly season is going to really kick into overdrive and we're going to see some. We're gonna. I think we're gonna see some interesting moves. I'm very excited about this silly season. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So, real quick, 
I want to talk about Danny Rick's return. I mean, I know we talked a little bit about him slotting into the car. One of the things that you and I had talked about privately was how would Danny do coming in from the cold, if yeah. you will. I'm glad I'm eating my words. I really thought this first race, I really thought that Yuki would definitely out-qualify him just simply because of Danny's time away from racing action. One thing to drive the simulator, it's one thing to do tire testing. It's something totally different to be in an actual race situation. For Danny to out-qualify and outrun Yuki, you know, and unfortunately he didn't finish in the points. The fact that he qualifies 13th, out-qualifies Yuki by several yeah. grid spots, right? outraces Yuki. Mm -hmm. On his first race back, just goes to show the potential that Danny has in that Alpha Tower. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I, you know, again, I, I love watching him race. I, I love just seeing him back on the grid. Yeah, it's Alpha Tauri, but we all know that's a stepping stone. We all know that yeah. he's not going to be there long. Maybe at the end of the season, he'll go somewhere else. Who knows? Maybe he's Ferrari. Maybe Checo doesn't do well. Checo's out. Who knows, right? That's why yeah, I'm really looking for silly season. But yeah, to see him back on the grid, and especially to do so well, mm -hmm. not be back on the grid like he was at McLaren, really getting that confidence back and just having a place to grow. Yes, back absolutely. Into where he was. Yeah, absolutely. Great weekend for Danny Rick. Really excited yeah. for it. Going on to Alpine. <laughs> Those poor oh, guys. Alpine. It's like they just can't buy any luck. You know, <laughs> you know it's just... I mean, they had a decent qualifying. Yeah, you know, yeah. They, they qualified they fairly well. Both, uh, I think, I believe both cars actually made it into Q two. But it, yeah. first corner. But it's like their entire yeah. race ends in the first corner. <laughs> yeah, you know? they look good and, until and, that and first not even corner. through their own fault. It wasn't even <laughs> yeah, their totally. own fault. You yeah. know, not a. It's not like one car all. gets pushed off and then it, you know ends up colliding with the other one. Gasly's back end is up in the air, so it made for you know a really horrendous weekend for alpine and i just hope that you know next weekend is is a little better yeah i do too i really hope that uh, well I, it doesn't get any worse than two dnfs no. right two dnfs <laughs> and especially not even get. past the first corner yeah <laughs> so yeah uh, and then compounding on to not nearly as bad at least they finished but alfa romeo oh Botas, he looked okay. He struggled, obviously, a bit. Yes. He finished outside of the points as well as Joe. What are your but, thoughts on that? Well, Botas didn't have a good weekend. There's yeah. nothing more much Struggle. to say about that. Joe Granu had an absolutely, I mean, it's like at the beginning of, you know, as we talked about earlier, during the free practices, during qualifying, he was up there at the top five, top eight on all the timesheets, qualifies fifth, but... I don't know if he, they had some problems with the car, if they had to take some, you know, tune some stuff down in order to, for reliability purposes or what, but he qualifies fifth and ends up coming home in 16th and out of the points. You right. know, he, he really had the potential to actually bring home some points and it just didn't materialize. So it was just yeah. really feel bad for Joe that the fact that he had such a strong Friday and Saturday and just yeah. couldn't, He'd parlay so that good. into success on Saturday or right. on Sunday. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, to, to lighten the mood a little bit, we can talk about the, the podium shenanigans. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. <Poor Norris>. <laughs> <laughs> so as has been famously broadcast all over the world, the <laughs> trophies that are presented for the Hungarian Grand Prix 
are made by a porcelain company and i forget the i forget it's it's a long name that you know i can't pronounce and i'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it but each one of these trophies takes six months to make and rumor has it that they cost upwards of like 40 grand to make i didn't realize it was that much money <laughs> yeah wow. so these these ridiculously expensive trophies and and really i have to admit they're really quite beautiful trophies and everything yeah, sure but and then <laughs> we saw it briefly <laughs> yeah we saw it briefly so max sets his thing down on the podium and the first thing that when lando grabs his sh champagne bottle he takes and bounces it off the podium in order to shake it up yeah. to start the spray and the trophy collapses <laughs> breaks and it was just and you can see the look on on lando's face when he sees it tumble over and at first he doesn't realize that it's fallen over and broken and then he takes a second takes a second look and realizes what's happening you can see his eyes get about as big as a wheel <laughs> you know he felt horrible about that too <laughs> yes absolutely so it just he proceeds with the the podium celebration and the spray of champagne and then to to see max when he picks up the broken trophy and he's showing it to, to lando and everything but you you know all things considered because he won max was able to kind of take it in stride kind of was able to laugh about it which made it even that much funnier the fact that you know yeah. max was just able to shrug and say you know hey it happened you know and right. I, but the thing is though is that i guarantee you that the fia will have a new one made but i guarantee you that the broken one will find a very prominent place in the Red Bull trophy case. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the weekend in a nutshell. We've got another exciting weekend coming up. We got Belgium this weekend, which is out. It is right up there with Silverstone and Suzuka as, you know, best tracks on the, on the, on the calendar. Absolutely love Spa. It should be a very, very exciting weekend. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be an yeah. exciting one, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should go ahead and, you know, bring this one home, don't you? Definitely. Okay, then. So, everyone, thank you for listening to F1 Break Check. All right, so let's bring this one home. So you've been listening to F1 Break Check. My name's Scott Vick. Corey Brune. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to F1 Break Check. If you have enjoyed what you heard, don't miss a single episode by hitting that subscribe button in your favorite podcatcher. Also, help us grow by sharing us with your friends and fellow F1 fans. We value your feedback and passion, so please take a moment to review our podcast. Your reviews help us grow and improve, and it means the world to us. Share your thoughts, rate us, and let us know how we can make the show experience even better. F1 Break Check is a production of Break Check Media. For your hosts Scott Vick and Corey Broom, until next time stay inside track limits, and try not to pitch it in the kitty litter.